Thank you, Neil. I'm grateful for that prayer. Preach in Romans 9, hey? Reading Romans 9? Have a look with me in your Bibles, folks. Um, I'm assuming that many of you are using the NIVs either in the pew or your journals. So I just want to show you, if you notice, once you get to chapter 9 in Romans, just track the headings that the NIV gives to the text. The opening part of chapter 9 is described as Paul's anguish over Israel. Then there's a heading at verse 30, Israel's unbelief. Then if you scroll on down, the next heading at the start of chapter 11, the remnant of Israel. Then verse 25 of chapter 11, all Israel will be saved. We're heading into a section, chapters 9 to 11, where Paul will be speaking a lot about Israel. Uh, I need you to know that, and that's where we're headed. That's what this chapter was about. It's, it's what the next couple of chapters will be about. So to understand fully Paul's letter to the Romans, we've said this a number of times, but we certainly need to come back to it now. We need to continually remind ourselves of, of the audience, the, the first people who ever heard this letter. Paul's letter would have been read out loud in a network of house churches. Uh, throughout the city of Rome, and those house churches were made up of Jewish and Gentile believers. Uh, and we've said before, and we'll see later on in the letter, there's, there's division, there's friction between these two. And if you'd been listening carefully to the, the theology, the gospel that Paul has been uh, teaching so far in his letter, you can imagine moments where it would be very uh, very edgy in the community to hear what Paul's teaching. And chapter 9 has a little bit of that. So imagine listening to chapter 9 if you're a Jew, hearing Paul's teaching here. Or imagine being a Gentile. You can imagine some of the, the tensions that uh, this part of God's Word might raise. I, I tried to imagine them myself. I think there'd be the usual uh, human jockeying for position. The Gentile majority in these churches. They have come to prominence in recent years because the Jews were all banished out of the city uh, for a number of years, uh, and they've only recently returned. So they'll be looking down on the Jewish believers. I think they're thinking something like this. You Jews, you failed as the people of God. You were getting it wrong. You were far too caught up in the law, far too caught up with your own customs. God wasn't ever going to have a faithful people uh, while he only had you. So he invited uh, us, us other nations, into his family. The Jewish minority, they will have been looking down on the Gentiles. How do we know that? Well, that's what the Jews had been doing for centuries. We were here first. God may be loving and kind. He may well have welcomed you in out of the cold, but you'll only ever be blow-ins. You'll always be somewhat second-rate, an appendix to the true people of God. So you have this jockeying for position that you'd expect in any normal human community, this jockeying between Jews and Gentiles, uh, created this, this 
tension created by the birth of the Jesus movement. But I think it would also have raised a very real pastoral concern for Jewish believers. I wonder if you thought of it. Imagine for a moment that you're from a, a Jewish family. You've somehow heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and you've responded. You must be wondering surely about the rest of your family, about your friends, about fellow Jews who haven't come to trust in Jesus Christ. Paul, where do my people fit in now into this Jesus movement that you've been talking about, this gospel that you've been preaching? Has God given up on my people? They rejected Jesus at one moment in their history. Does God reject them now for the rest of eternity? What about God's promises to his people? It's these kind of questions that are on Paul's mind uh, when he writes in Romans chapter 9. These questions of Jew and Gentile probably feel quite remote for many of us. Uh, we might even imagine that they're entirely irrelevant. I, I don't believe that they are. Uh, I don't believe that the issue of Jew and Gentile uh, important as it was in Rome in Paul's time. I'm not sure if it's been understood and resolved in history. I'm not sure that it's understood and resolved even now. How Christians thought about Jews through history, how they think about them today, is something we could, could do well to think about. This matter still matters today. Let me demonstrate the importance of these questions in history by reminding you uh, inviting you to reflect on a very difficult moment in the more recent history of God's people, Israel. Let's go back to Hitler's Third Reich, back to November 1938. On the 7th of November, a young German Jew shot and killed an official in the German embassy in Paris. The young man's father had recently been put into a crowded boxcar and deported to Poland. For that and for the Nazis' other abuses against Jews, this young man had his revenge. But this shooting was just the pretext that Hitler and the Nazi leaders needed. Hitler gave the command immediately to take action against the Jews. Evils would be unleashed now against Jews in Germany on a terrible scale. At 1.20 a.m., Reinhard Heydrich, second in command to Himmler in the SS, sent an urgent message to all Gestapo stations across Germany. The orders gave explicit directions on what should be done to Jewish people in those communities. Uh, and an evening ensued that came to be known as Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass. Jewish homes and businesses destroyed and looted synagogues set aflame, Jews beaten and killed. Maybe you know a little history and you know a little of that gruesome chapter. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the young German pastor and theologian, he was spending these years teaching a small seminary of young students, preparing them for ministry in the confessing church, uh, an independent church that had stood up to Hitler and his Third Reich. 
In his biography of Bonhoeffer, Eric Metaxas tells us that Bonhoeffer didn't even hear about the events of Kristallnacht until the next day. And when he did, he naturally got into conversations with his students about these atrocities against the Jews. At one point in the conversations, one of the students suggested that the events of Kristallnacht could be explained by a widely accepted theory, and that is that there's a curse upon the Jewish people. These students didn't necessarily condone what had happened. They were genuinely upset by it. But along with many others in their day in Germany and throughout many other parts of the world, people were quite serious that the reason for evils that befell the Jews in generation after generation and period after period of history is that they bear a curse because they rejected Christ. Albeit in a different time and in a very different way, they were struggling again with the Jewish question. What is the place of the Jews in the purposes of God? Do they really live somehow outside of God's purposes, somehow under a curse? We'll come back to Bonhoeffer and that question a little later on. Let's come now to the text and see how Paul addresses the place of the Jews. I don't plan to go through these 33 verses line by line, but I do want to try and give you an overview. Even if the arguments in Romans are complex, I don't, I don't like ignoring them. I like to try and help you understand what's going on here. Paul begins in verses 1 to 5 by expressing his anguish over his own people. Remember, when Paul's writing about the Jews, he's writing about his people. He, although he's a, a minister to the Gentiles, he's the Jew of Jews. He's, he's as Jewish as they come. So Paul has an anguish for his people, the Jews. In verse 6, he tells us that God's word hasn't failed. God has not broken his promises to his people. And he spends the remainder of the chapter guiding us through the Old Testament to demonstrate the truth of that statement. He gives us the basic principle. If you, if you get what he says in verses 6 and 7, you'll, you'll see what the point of his argument is after that. He says, For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abram's children. If we're wondering why only some Jewish people are finding their place in the, the family of God, in the present, says Paul, it was always so. Not everyone who looked like a member of the people of God was a member of the family of God. It turns out that to be a true child of Abraham requires something more than ancestry. Paul begins making his case by taking us back to the story of the patriarchs, and he shows us how this principle plays out in the first couple of generations. He begins with Abraham's sons, verse 7, quoting from Genesis 21, it is through Isaac 
that your offspring will be reckoned. Paul goes on to explain, verse 8, it is not the children by physical ascent to God, descent to God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abram's offspring. You'll remember that story, I think. It wasn't Abram's firstborn son, Ishmael, but the son that God promised him, Isaac, who became Abram's heir. So that's the first generation. Paul shows that the second principle played out in the next generation, the same principle. It's the child of God's choosing who is part of his family, verse 10. Rebekah's children were received at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. And to confirm what we're reading in Genesis regarding God's election of Jacob over Esau, Paul takes us, verse 13, to Malachi 1, where the prophet has written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Stick with me. So far, Paul has stated the principle that not all who are of Jewish descent are true Israel. And he's demonstrated this principle at work in the first two generations of God's people. Next, in verses 14 to 21, he answers two questions that would naturally arise in the minds of his reader. You'll see the first question, verse 14. Is God then unjust? If he chooses Isaac over Ishmael and Jacob over Esau, isn't that unfair? We can easily understand the question. We're probably asking it ourselves. Paul, with his characteristically emphatic style, responds, not at all. And he justifies his response with a quotation, this time not from the patriarchs, but from a key moment in God's dealing with Moses in Exodus. Flick with me for a moment to Exodus 33. The page number, I think, might be 92 in your Bible there in the pew. In Exodus 33, in the opening verses, we read about a tent where Moses meets with the Lord. We read verse 11 that the Lord would speak with Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Isn't that beautiful? The following verses we read of one of these conversations that Moses had with the Lord. Moses doesn't want to lead the Lord's people without reassurance of God's presence. He makes an audacious request, verse 18. Now show me your glory. And we read in verse 19 that the Lord said, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you, and I'll proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. So when Moses asks to see God's glory, the Lord says three things. I'll let you, you'll see something. My goodness will pass in front of you. You'll hear something. I'll speak my name and you'll know something. I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. 
I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. It's in the Lord's nature. It's part of his glory to show mercy. It's part of his glory that he is compassionate. And it's his right to choose the objects of his mercy and compassion. Flick back with me to to Romans, Romans 9. Paul's point, based on this passage from Exodus 33 in verse 16, is that being part of a family of God, of the family of God, does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Paul sticks with this theme of God having mercy on whom he'll have mercy in verses 17 to 18. He reminds us of Pharaoh. So he brings us back to Exodus, this time to chapter 9. Don't worry about looking it up. I think you'll, you'll follow the argument. God had already sent six plagues on Egypt by, by this stage. It's, it's to persuade Pharaoh to let his people go to come and worship him. After six rounds of, of this battle of Pharaoh against Yahweh, it, it looks like a stalemate is being reached. It, it, it almost looks to the reader like, like the, the battle is somehow, um, somehow a draw. Not a bit of it. That's not how God sees it. He speaks to the mighty Pharaoh and he says, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Paul uses this story of Pharaoh to illustrate the principle that he's teaching. God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. But Paul develops the principle a little bit further with Pharaoh. He adds an extra phrase. Do you see it there? And he hardens whom he wants to harden. Uh, Some of us who are following the book-by-book reading program read the book of Exodus in January. And one of the things we talked about was the state of Pharaoh's heart. Because it's quite quite a prominent theme in the book. Did Pharaoh harden his own heart or did the Lord harden it? And we notice something very interesting in the text. We notice that there's a a kind of a progression. With the first few of the the plagues, we read that after after the plague had happened and the Lord relented and, and took the plague away, Pharaoh hardened his heart. That's what the text says a number of times. Then there there occurs a few times a more passive description where we read that his heart was hardened. But finally, we read rather ominously about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. So what is it? Is it human beings who choose to respond to God or is it God who works in human hearts? There's a mystery here. In this chapter, when we think of these things, it's that interaction between God's election of a person and our own free will. I won't attempt to resolve that this evening for you, but I'd rather point you to the wise teachings of a man who who maintained a balance here better than most, Charles Simeon. He was the minister in Cambridge 
in the, the first half of the 19th century. It was during a time when Calvinists and Arminians were debating this matter endlessly. He encouraged his congregation to stick with Scripture rather than to create their own theological systems. He summarized his own approach as follows. When I come to a text that speaks of election, I delight myself in the doctrine of election. When the apostles exhort me to repentance and obedience and indicate my freedom of choice and action, I give myself to that side of the question. I find Simeon's approach helpful indeed. So Paul's answered this first question, is God unjust, with the reply that God will have mercy on whom he has mercy. Paul deals with a second question, verse 19. If it's true that God will have mercy on whom he has mercy, why then does he still hold men accountable? Why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? Again, there's something understandable about this question. If we were God's equal, this question would make sense and be entirely appropriate. But we're not God's equal. And that is Paul's point. Verse 20. Who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? He, he takes his reader back to Isaiah this time who put the same question in very vivid terms. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common good? Paul's point. God will have mercy on whom he has mercy. He's at liberty to choose to show kindness to whomever he's who he chooses. And we're not in a position to question that. I don't want to be naive. I recognize immediately that that's an answer that won't sit very easily with the secular modern mind. You see, modern people who haven't quite denied the existence or the possibility of God, often end up creating the strangest thing of all, and that is a God who makes sense to them, a reasonable God, a God who they can understand, rather than the God revealed in Scripture and in Jesus Christ, who's not answerable to us but who holds us answerable to him. God is not obliged to explain himself to us. So by this stage in Romans 9, Paul stated his basic principle. Not every physical descendant of Abram is a true descendant of Abram. He's illustrated the principle in a couple of the earliest generations where God chose Isaac over Ishmael and where he chose Jacob over Esau. He's answered the objections that might arise by telling us that it's God's prerogative to have mercy on whom he chooses and that it's not our place to question that. In verses 22 
to 29, Paul explains God's purposes in the time before Christ. He says, in his patience, God bore with the objects of his wrath. God was patient. He allowed the people of Israel, disobedient as they were, failing as they were, to be the people of God. In doing so, he demonstrated that glory that he'd spoken to Moses about, that glory of his mercy and his compassion. He demonstrated this glory to the object of his mercy, says Paul. Those who've come now to receive his mercy in Christ Jesus. A wider family of God, a whole new people of God, one made up of Gentiles as well as Jews. A new people of God has emerged. Paul uses four more passages from the Old Testament to demonstrate that while it was always God's purpose to create this multi-ethnic people of God, he never intended to leave behind his chosen people, the Jews. The first couple of passages from Hosea, he's talking about the inclusion of the Jews, particularly at a time when they'd experienced the exile and it looked like the whole thing was over. He says, I will call them my people who are not my people. In this very place where it was said of them, you're not my people, there they'll be called children of the living God. Israel will remain a part of the multi-ethnic people of God. But not all of Israel. That's his point with the second pair of prophecies. In Isaiah 10, we read, though the number of Israelites will be like sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. The existence of this remnant, Paul says, is the final expression of God's mercy and compassion. Quoting from Isaiah 1, he said, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. That's not easy for us to track, but now we're in a better place to understand the place of Jews in the purposes of God. Even before the time of Christ, true Israel was always a much smaller subset than the whole of ethnic Israel. God remained faithful to Israel, but only a, rem a remnant of Israel remained faithful to him. Let's come back for a moment to Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his young seminarians. The young men, along with the wider population, were wondering whether Hitler's savage attacks on the Jews were justified. It was, after all, a widely held view that the Jewish people were under God's curse. Bonhoeffer knew these guys. He knew that they weren't hateful, they weren't purposefully anti-Semitic, he, but he certainly couldn't agree with them. Bonhoeffer knew that his students were wrong, so he went back to God's word. In his Bible reading that day or the next, Bonhoeffer was reading Psalm 74. Flick with me to Psalm 74. 
page 587. As Bonhoeffer read this with the events of Kristallnacht just before him, he was astounded by what he read. He put a vertical line in the margin of his Bible and an exclamation mark. He underlined the second half of verse 8. They burned every place where God was worshipped in the land. Next to that verse, he put the date in the column in his Bible, 9-11-38. Bonhoeffer sensed that God was speaking to him through his word. God was speaking to the Christians in Germany. God was telling them something through his word that day. And as he meditated and prayed, Bonhoeffer realized that the synagogues that were being burned in Germany were God's own. Verse 7, they burned your sanctuary to the ground. They defiled the dwelling place of your name. And this is when Bonhoeffer most clearly saw the connection. If you lift your hands against the Jewish people, you lift your hands against God himself. The Nazis were attacking God when they attacked his people. The Jews in Germany were not only not God's enemies, they were his beloved children. His reading that day got Bonhoeffer thinking about this question we're thinking about this evening. How to think about the Jewish people after the coming of Jesus. We get more of an insight into Bonhoeffer's thinking from a circular letter that he wrote a few days later to his Finkenwald community. He developed his thinking beyond uh, Psalm 74, he reflected on Zechariah chapter 2, verse 8. For this is what the Lord Almighty says, The glorious one has sent me against the nations that have plundered you. For whoever touches you, Israel, touches the apple of my eye. And then Bonhoeffer came to our chapter, Romans 9. He came to verse 4, where Paul reminds us of the greatness and the great privileges of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever to be praised. In his letter, Bonhoeffer takes his readers to Romans 11, where Paul is still talking about the remnant of Israel. Flick with me. Romans 11, verse 11. Again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? I am talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arise my own 
people to envy and save some of them. Paul, he said at the beginning of her chapter, had an anguish for his own people that they might be saved. Bonhoeffer sought to convince the Germans of his day, of God's love for his people, Israel, by taking them to his word, to the words of Jews, the words of David and of Zechariah and Paul, to make the point that the Jews are God's people and that the Messiah came from them and for them, first of all for them. God hasn't abandoned his people, Israel. They remain the apple of his eye. Any Christian who knows their Bible will know that God loves the Jewish people and they will share Paul's anguish for God's people that Israel will be saved. We get a chance to think a little bit more about the places of Israel and the purposes of God in chapters 10 and 11. But I want to, to close this evening by just making our thinking a little bit wider. Some of these passages in Romans can be hard to understand. Sometimes Paul takes us on a, on a journey that we just find difficult to follow. But one thing I've noticed as I've grappled with these texts, quite often after a difficult stretch, there'll be a summarizing chunk that I do understand and that helps me with what's gone before. Chapter 9 is no different. We have one of those summarizing sections at the end of our chapter, just a two or three minutes here. Paul summarizes the argument of the whole of chapter 9 so far when he says, verse 30, the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Do you see what he's doing? He's simply bringing the gospel that he's been preaching throughout Romans so far to, to bear now on this question of the Jews. What was that gospel? It's of a righteousness that comes from God apart from the law. It's a gospel that says that we're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. The Gentiles have found that gospel without ever having the law. Many Jews have missed that gospel because they've trusted instead in their own efforts. They've sought to be justified by their own works of the law. What Paul's saying here sounds difficult at first. Can it really be true that people who've known about God for centuries, who've been as religious as the Jewish people were, can it really be true that, that they can miss out and people who've just heard the gospel for the first time can be welcomed straight into the family of God? Can that be true? Absolutely, says Paul. 
if you bear in mind what's really going on, the Jews who miss Jesus miss him because they pursued a righteousness not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumble over Jesus, says Paul. And then he meshes together two quotations from Isaiah, one which talks about the Lord as a stone that people stumble over and one that describes him as the cornerstone. They stumbled over this stumbling stone as it is written, see I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Look again at those closing verses. If you have a journal with you, or a Bible that you're happy to write in. Don't write in our pew Bibles, because I'll be in trouble. Two occurrences of the phrase, by faith, so important in our earlier chapters in Romans. In verse 30, we read of Gentiles who have received a righteousness that is by faith. In verses 31 and 32, we read of Jews who miss out on God's righteousness because they pursued the God, the, a righteousness by law rather than by faith. Do you see it now? The answer to the Jewish question. It's true that the Jews are God's chosen people. It's true that they are much loved and always will be. It's true that God's never broken a single promise he made to them. But it's also true that it doesn't matter, finally, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. It doesn't matter whether you've had the law for millennia or whether you heard the gospel a minute ago. What matters is faith faith in Jesus Christ, what matters for people of all religious backgrounds and none is faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. If you don't have that faith, Jesus Christ is the stone that you stumble over. But when you do have that faith, he's the cornerstone. He's the rock on which you stand. Believe in him and you'll never be put to shame. Let's pray.